Good morning, everyone. It was so, so nice to hear so much noise uh, in the hall, you know, just people speaking. It's been such a long time. Um, it feels like it's been such a long time since I've seen so many people in here as well. And so it's just really, really nice uh, to have you guys back. Welcome back. Um, we are still at two square meters, so we're not completely back to normal yet, I guess. Uh, we're not back to you know, being right in each other's faces. Um, so we do still have to socially distance, I guess. But I do encourage you, if you guys were in that week A, week B system, uh, maybe after service, find someone from a different week from you. Um, it might seem like a, it's very far away, you know, and so you guys can uh, catch up a little bit. Um, as Christine mentioned, we are in our fourth week of Goodbye 2021, um, our series. We have one more week left after this. So we've gone through uh, Goodbye compartmentalizing, consumption, comfortability, and today we're looking at combativeness. Um, if we haven't met yet, I'm seeing a few new faces as well. Uh, my name is Young, pastor here at uh, New Life. Uh, the hope and prayer through this series is that um, as we go on, you'll be able to reflect on the messages and allow them to shed light on your own heart as well. Um, see where you stand with some of the things that we're talking about, and that in prayer, you'll be able to confess them, um, repent before God, and ask him to help you to actually say goodbye to these things and that uh, he might renew your heart. Um, with that in mind, why don't I pray for us, and we'll get into the word today. Uh, Father, you are so good to us, and your uh, gracious, faithful, eternal love uh, just reminds us, Lord, uh, of your promise to us that you will never leave us nor forsake us. Truly, you are good, and truly, you're the only one that we can look to uh, for that goodness, for that love that lasts longer than anything else that we can look to. We look to this love uh, not only as an example uh, that we can copy, but as something instructive and something that changes us from the inside out. Uh, we know, Lord, that you are good, and we know, Lord, that it is your goodness that gives us uh, goodness that we can extend to others as well, God. Um, as we think about combativeness, as we think about our own combativeness and our own tendencies towards evil and towards returning evil for evil, would you convict our hearts through the Holy Spirit um, we know, Lord, that any sort of conviction towards sin comes from you, and we don't want to turn away from that, but we want to take hold of that. We want to confess it and repent it as well, God, that we might be changed. We pray, Lord, that your wisdom would be with us today, God, uh, that you would um, make wise our foolish hearts and minds and help us, Lord, to be changed by you. Renew our hearts once again. Renew our love for you, uh, that we might love one another. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, last week, we talked about comfortability and how it draws us away from evangelism. You know, the question of, uh, as we did this, the question of not understanding fully Jesus' teaching came up, you know, kind of towards the middle of the sermon. And we talked about the medicine of remembrance. You know, what role does remembrance play when it comes to forgetfulness when it comes to this thing. And today's passage contains an instruction from the Lord that is worth remembering, but is so often forgotten. You know, Christine read it for us, and when we actually read it, it's like, oh yeah, you know, this is one of the crucial cornerstones of Christianity. 
You know, it kind of makes society work a little bit as well. But so often we forget it. But as we read it, the question is, is Jesus' teaching here straightforward? Is he pretty straightforward when he teaches us to love our enemies? Is it easy to understand? How well do you think we're carrying out this instruction? I've talked about this in, in recent times, but there's this increasing combativeness about society as a whole, not just you know, us. But for some reason, we're not exempt. You know, we Christians are not exempt from this. For some reason, we join in. And I think some of us relish it. You know, I, I think for some reason, we like joining in as well. In fact, I would say that argumentative Christians have been around for quite a while. You know, you, you've seen it. Christians have been quite argumentative at times. You know, like you would see people debating endlessly on social media about theological issues. Maybe you have those kinds of friends about how each denomination conducts worship services. We argue about this. We insist on what the correct way to do things is. You know, we might look down on our brethren from another denomination and say, that's just wrong. Why do you do that? That's not Christian. You know, we, we polarize. It's no wonder that these days, when the world looks at particular fringes of people, you know what I'm talking about? Like people on the outskirts of society who push all sorts of conspiracy theories and who like to polarize and they notice their hateful rhetoric, the way that they seem to divide society rather than welcome and extend grace and love to others. It's no wonder that there's no surprise to them if these people self-identify as Christians. Do you, do you see this? Like when people actually come out after all of their hateful speech and say, well, I'm a Christian, a lot of society's response is, yeah, I know, I can tell. For a watching world, Christians being hateful or combative or gullible is normal. Like whatever happened to mercy, whatever happened to love being the marker of Christians. I remember when people used to be amazed at this undeserved, overextending love that seemed to characterize all Christians. You know, that drew them into the gospel message. They became curious about why these Christians are just so loving and nice to them. Why they go so above and beyond. I remember that time. I've talked about this guy, uh, Augustine, a few times in sermons past. I'm sure I've called him, I've pronounced his name differently at times, Augustine or Augustine, you know, take it or leave it, whatever you want to say. Uh, he's a great theologian of early church history who has had enormous influence on all of Christianity and probably all of Western thought as a whole. And Augustine himself talks about how he first began to draw near to the Lord. And he says this, you follow along on screen as well. I came to Milan to Ambrose the bishop. It was by you, Lord, that unconsciously I was led to him so that by him I might consciously be brought to you. That man of God received me like a father. When I came, he showed me the kindness of a bishop. From that point, I found myself beginning to love him. But at first, it was not because he was a teacher of the truth. I had no expectation 
that I would, I would find that in your church. It was because he was kind to me personally. I listened carefully to him when he preached to his congregation. Not as I should have done, but instead assessing his eloquence to see if he really merited his reputation. And yet, little by little, I was drawing near quite unconsciously. And Augustine, this man who didn't expect to find truth in the church, still found himself drawn near again and again by kindness. You know, once the heart used to set apart Christians, but now it seems as though the badge of honor that we hold most dear is how big our bookcases, you know, full of theological books, or how eloquently we dismantle someone else's argument or viewpoint. But Christian witness, it has to be charitable. It has to be merciful. The good news is relief to the broken soul. When we talk about glorifying God in the gospel of grace each week, one of the biggest operating words in that little vision statement is that last one, grace. We talk about grace. It's this grace which encapsulates charity and mercy and love. That's good news for the broken. These are the things that people are looking towards. They're not looking for whatever rehearsed lines that we might come up with. They're looking for charity and mercy and love in grace. But these last two years, I'm sure you've seen it as well, have seen a sharp increase in polarization and combativeness. Just fighting words. I know you feel this too, okay? So if you are like me and you, like the only time you read a newspaper is when you're at a cafe and you're just waiting for your coffee, I'm sure you've seen those news articles. They're just so hateful. Like everything is just so hateful. I don't know why there's so much hatred in these little newspapers, right? Or on news articles that people share on social media. Everything is so divisive. Look at the top comments on anything. It doesn't even have to be anything important. It can be bluey, it can be the wiggles, it can be anything. And people are so divisive. It can be Christian or otherwise. People are willing to crucify others for their beliefs if they're not in line with their own. They're willing to say, well, you might as well die. You might as well not be alive. But Christians, someone's already been crucified for these things. There's no need for us to nail anyone else to that cross any longer, except for our own lives. Now, it's not surprising that the world has gone this way because the logical conclusion of the way that our society has been heading, if you've just been observing kind of the flow of society, you can see where we're at now, you can see that we're probably headed a little bit further. Okay, this culture of outrage, you know, of making people just angry, it's been going throughout the world, it's been propagating all throughout the world, businesses have picked up on the fact that angry reactions drive engagement just as much, if not more, than happy ones. And so it's kind of their prerogative, if they want their business to succeed, to make you angry and to make you feel something, just not feel neutral. So the overarching narrative within culture today has become, if you don't agree with everything I believe in, then you are completely against me. Like every, like 100% of what I believe in, you must agree with, otherwise you're fully against me. 
And that's done in order to cause people to argue endlessly and engage. There's no charity to be found here. And we Christians, we seem to have bought in to this ridiculousness as well. I think about how funny it must look to those that might not believe, like my friends, if they view Christians from the outside world, <laughs> when they see us engaging in arguments with Christians from other denominations. Like how crazy must that look? Because to them, they might not even know what denominations are. This is our family. We have more in common with people that believe a little bit differently from us, but they believe in the same gospel. But we treat them as other to us. We treat them as completely different from us because they pray a little different from us or because they sing a little bit louder than us. They clap or you know, dance or whatever. When it comes to the pillars of our society, of mateship here in Australia, of the common good of the country, I think we seem to have forgotten what it means to disagree on certain issues and yet still find common ground that we can stand on in ways to exist together and for us to love them, for us Christians to love. If you're not a Christian and you're hearing all this, you know, please allow us to continue to do a bit of housekeeping today for Christians. You have no real obligation to love us since you don't... Um, believe in Jesus' teaching. It's still a very good teaching, though, and I hope you can see that as you read through this passage. So I hope you're able to see the truth of Jesus today. But for us Christians, we're defined by God. Even that word Christian, even that phrase that we use, means little Christ. We're supposed to look like him. Can we not only listen to what Christ says here in this passage, but do what we've seen him do, act in the way that we've seen him towards those that we would call enemies? Examine his teaching with me. Luke 6, 27 to 29. But I say to you who listen, love your enemies. Do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If anyone hits you on the cheek, offer the other also. And if anyone takes away your coat, don't hold back your shirt either. This is one of the dis distinguishing marks of being a Christian. This ethic to love our enemies. This sets Christians apart. Without this, effectively, we do away with last week's message on evangelism. We just live these, you know, happy, clappy, lonely, paradoxical lives since we ourselves would never have believed except that love for the enemy exists. Here's the weird thing, though. As paradoxical as that is, think about how paradoxical it is to love your enemies. Like, it makes no sense, if you really think about it, to welcome them into your community if they're your enemies. It makes no sense. We have a bunch of people at New Life who really enjoy playing tennis together, okay? They have this tennis club. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. I don't know if they're still going or maybe if it's on break. But imagine that they invite me along and I hate tennis, okay? I don't actually, but imagine that I hate tennis and I wanted to show and tell everyone I know about how much I really hate tennis. But they're inviting me and so I come along to the tennis nights. I start just smashing rackets, throwing tennis balls off the court, like go get it. You know, generally just being a nuisance, even telling people 
that we should change it into a soccer club. Let's change it. This is a much better sport. This would jeopardize the identity of the club. This doesn't make sense. They will probably ask me, because they're nice Christians, please stop doing that. Please give that racket back. But then maybe after a little while, they would just ask me, don't come back. Please leave us alone. Jesus, however, is teaching us, his followers, that our community is supposed to be one with open borders. Keep on inviting your enemies. Keep on welcoming them in. That one of the biggest identifiers of our Christian community is that we refuse to treat others, especially those who hate us, as our enemies. They're one of us. They're welcome. Look at the way this happens by undermining the idea of reciprocity, okay, of reciprocating. Read with me verses 32 to 34. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do what is good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to be repaid in full. Now, it's, it's pretty important to note that Jesus is speaking to a people that exist in a culture that's just as divisive as ours is. It's just as divided. Life at this time, with the Roman conquest of many nations, it was typified by this imbalance in social economic relations. Okay, so people were set apart from each other. There were power dynamics at play everywhere. If anything was given to someone else, you best believe that there was the ex expectation that you'll return in kind, that you'll get back at least as much as you've given. And this results in this complex web of obligations and debts. Everyone's in debt to each other. In place of this, what Jesus is teaching is an ethic that doesn't view anyone as enemies. And he advocates for an open-handed sharing or even giving of possessions in a way that's a lot more similar to people who are part of a family group rather than enemies. And since uh, our baby Jonas came into the world, uh, Bora and I have been staying with my parents and we're eating all their food, we're using all their electricity, they don't have any left. You know, we share and have everything in common. And I hope that they're okay with it, because they're family. I expect that they're okay with it. I really hope they're okay with it. There's no expectation of, well, you have to pay us back, because we're family, and this is the type of relationship that Jesus is telling his followers to have with their enemies. Now, you might feel really cynical about this. If you've lived in this world for a little while, it might sound really ideal but impossible to you to live in this way. You might even begin to wrestle with your own idea of reciprocating when it comes to God loving you, his enemy. But there is no obligation there, only salvation. And with it, comes invitation into a life of discipleship. 
if you take this invitation, it'll be the best decision that you've ever made in your life, but it's not easy by any means because God's character must change and renew your character as well. When I was first getting started in ministry a long time ago in Korea, my pastor, he gave me the time of day. He would just meet up with me. He would invite me to his meetings with volunteers in his ministry. He would spend time with me, put up with all of my insufferable, know-it-all thoughts about youth ministry and how we should change everything. Just listen. And whatever he taught me, whatever he said about my theology, whatever I picked up in his preaching, the thing that I remember more than anything, what I was shaped most by was his character, was who he was. The biggest thing that he imparted on me was this thing, relational priority. I knew how busy he was, and yet he would never say no if I said, hey, let's get a cup of coffee together. And he would just talk to me endlessly, just listen to me. This is what we see when we look at the expectation that Christ puts on us to love our enemies. It's not out of nowhere that this expectation comes, that this teaching comes, but it's rooted in God's character. God's goodness is displayed in his mercy and his grace to those who don't deserve it, namely us who have been his enemies. Only God's own graciousness gives context and meaning and reason for why we should love our enemies. You may note that for God, when it comes to the category of enemies, it includes all of us, it includes everyone on earth, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans tells us. But who are our enemies? Okay, obviously not everyone is sinning against us. There are some people that are downright nice to us. Who are our enemies? Is it just those who oppose us directly? just attacking us, those who hate on our beliefs or ethnicity or political leanings. Verse 30 tells us, give to everyone who asks you and from someone who takes your things, don't ask for them back. So according to this verse, no. Although the verse is preceding it, talks to us about those kinds of categories, familiar foes, this verse tells us about maybe a beggar who might not necessarily be against us, who's just asking for something. But certainly he occupies a space outside of those that we would call friends or family. So when Jesus tells us to love our enemies, our enemies include everyone outside of those that we might call friends, those outside of that immediate circle. So who are the enemies among you then? Who are those outside your friend circle? Try to call these people to mind if you can think of them. Some of them might be those who actively hate you for your faith if you've made it known to them. Some of them might be those that you just passionately disagree with online but you might never run into in person. And some of them might be those that you just simply wouldn't normally associate with. Maybe the homeless person who's asking you for alms on the quarter. If this is who we love, how do we love then? Now the temptation might be, let's just live and let live. To passively just acknowledge that someone exists and just avoid them. But the teaching from Jesus in this passage goes beyond passivity to something else. Love is expressed in doing good. 
Look at the passage with me, the, the highlighted points. Love shows itself by blessing, by praying for, by offering more than what's taken or requested from us. Now I know often the hardest times to love someone is when you're in the throes of anger, you know, when you're passionately upset, when you're reacting to someone else. It's hard. I know. I'm married. And so I know that it can be very hard when you're upset. Because in these times, words for prayer don't come up. You know, the words that do come up to mind, you feel like you can't say in prayer. Like it would never exist in the Bible. But this is why when the disciples found Jesus praying alone in the deserted places in the wilderness, and they asked him to teach them how to pray, Jesus then turns to them and say, man, don't even worry about it. What do you mean teach you? Just say whatever comes to your mind. That's how you talk to me. Like there's a time, don't let me disparage that, there's a time for spontaneous prayers and I encourage you to have that kind of relationship where you can have these conversations with God. I encourage you to do that. But it won't do you much good when you're in the midst of anger and no words come to mind when you're trying to pray for someone. Jesus' main prerogative when he's teaching his disciples how to pray, was to teach them the Lord's Prayer. Remember our series, Teach Us to Pray. He taught them the Lord's Prayer for this very reason. Anglican priest uh, Tish Harrison Warren, she puts it this way. One particularly instructive prayer practice for me has been using set prayers to pray for enemies. When I've been deeply wronged, the prayers that come naturally are for my own vindication, or that God would show the other guy what a jerk he's being. But those prayers do little to shape me into a person capable of loving my enemies. But praying inherited prayers inches my heart towards forgiveness and love, even in spite of myself. In the Lord's Prayer, we ask that we may be forgiven as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. In the Jesus Prayer, that Christ would have mercy on me, a sinner. And in the Book of Common Prayer, that in your good time, enable us all to stand reconciled before you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This kind of prayer practice opens up new possibilities. My heart, through prayer, begins imagining a kind of ethic of forgiveness that my conscious will can't yet reach. In these times, when your own words won't do, look to others' words. Practice prayer so that you may pray for your enemies. Now this results in a new kind of culture, a creation of culture that embodies an old culture, a culture renewed by Jesus. So our modern day popular culture cannot foster love. If you really examine the modern day culture, it can't foster love. This is a world of commodity and capital of seeking to find out what's in it for me, rather than how can I do good, whatever the cost. Jesus' question, what credit is that to you in response to loving those who love you? It's ironic because he acknowledges that aspect of things, the capital. But it also insists that what we do isn't determined by a relationship to the other, nor is it because of what we expect to receive from them. We love because he loves us. 
This makes right now, after the past two years of divisiveness, of polarization, of combativeness, the best time ever to be countercultural, to be truly Christian. We can love when others hate, and we can seek to welcome when others divide. It goes without saying that if the world were to live in this way, it'd just be a better place. Like, just imagine it. Imagine a world united instead of trying to divide. Imagine a newspaper, like a flower bloomed today. You know, that's what it would say. But that's not our reality. So why should we bother living in this way? Look with me at the final two verses of our passage today. Luke 6, 35 to 36. But love your enemies, do what is good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, for he is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. We're told that when we live in this manner, God will reward us. Now, I'm aware that this kind of sentiment can make some of us squirm because we don't like, you know, meritocracy when it comes to our faith. We don't like anything that is a sniff of works or prosperity. But notice that Jesus says this reward is for those who expect nothing in return. You might start chasing your own tail if you try to do this. It's like, okay, I'm going to expect nothing in return so I can get rewarded. And then you're like, oh, no, I'm expecting. God's reward is not based on a deal with us, like he's bound to do something if we act in a certain way. Okay, this isn't what it's saying. There's no contract at work here, but rather in generosity and his love for enemy, it stems from his character. And this results in a knowledge that such a God is good to us as well. If he's teaching us to be good to our enemies, to love them, then we can expect that he does the same for us as well. Second, and perhaps more importantly, Jesus tells us that this behavior is indicative of not only God, but his children as well, us, us who believe. It speaks of a regenerated heart. It speaks of a regenerated mind. It speaks of discipleship. It speaks of being renewed in the image of Christ. Just as Jesus, as a son of God, essentially shares in the character and nature of Father God, we too as adopted children into God's family, share in his character as well. And this means that we extend the love that he has for us, his enemies, to our enemies. This is the God who would in love come down to become human, that he might receive a strike across his cheek and then offer the other also. This is the God who has not only had his coat taken away from him, but he was hung naked with his skin falling off of his flesh from the whip. And this is the God when we asked for his life, he gave it to us and instead of asking for it back, he gave us new life in him as well. He loved those who didn't love him and he did good to those who hated him and he gave to those who could never pay back us, and now we can go and do the same. Why don't you pray with me?
Father, just applicationally, it's just hard to force ourselves to love our enemies, especially when they're in our face, especially when our culture has so discipled us to be combative. Our every instinct is to put a shell around ourselves, around our hearts, so that we might not be hurt. And in our defensiveness, we get a little bit spiky and we fight back and we attack them first. But Lord, we know that this isn't Jesus' way. When all around him, people were clamoring for him to strike first, to take down the Roman Empire, he allowed himself to be taken and captured, to be tortured and whipped, and to be killed. He gave of himself until there was nothing left to give. And he blessed those that cursed him. We, as your adopted family, want to do the same as well. We know that Jesus has made a way for us. We know that if only we believe in him and the work that he's done for us, that we can call ourselves your own, that we can call ourselves your sons and daughters of the Most High. If this is the case, Lord, we want to learn from you, our Father. Through the Holy Spirit, we want to be changed. Renew our minds, God, because we can't do it on our own. Our hearts are prone to wander and seek after their own good, but we don't even know how to define our own good. So define it for us. Speak to us. For my brothers and sisters here, God, who are willing to lay down their hearts before you and say, my life is not my own. For my brothers and sisters here who are willing to go to the cross, to take up their cross and follow him who went before. I pray, Lord, that you bless their hearts, that you would change them from the inside out, that you would renew their minds and their spirits, that they might look more and more like your son, Jesus. Help us, Lord, to give up combativeness, to say goodbye to it, and to love our enemy, and to not even see them as our enemy, but to welcome them into our community. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.